Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. A few years ago, I was on this backpacking trip in the Sierra. And way out there, probably 10 or 15 miles deep into the wilderness, the thing that struck me the most was how just magnificent the night sky could be. Stars, constellations, galaxies, heck, even the little blinking satellites floating by. Looking up at the sky, it was like I'd never truly seen it before. And maybe I hadn't. In most of our urban environments, too much light gets in the way, and it's harder to see what's out there. Bay Curious listener Bruce Wismer knows this problem well. He lives in the East Bay, and at night, the skies above his home are aglow. A wash in the oranges from the Port of Oakland, and further west, the bright white lights from the Bay Bridge. On the eastern span of the Bay Bridge, some lights point straight up, significantly increasing light pollution. I'm curious about how this was approved. Can they be easily redirected to reduce impact on the night sky? Bruce grew up in the small town of Forestville in Sonoma County, where the stars were clear and bright. But in Oakland, not so much. He misses having that great view. I've always enjoyed looking at the sky and just laying on your back when it's a moonless night and seeing everything there is to see, the occasional satellite passing by and occasionally uh, the space station. It's just a sense of wonder to look at everything. This week on the show, we'll learn about light pollution and answer Bruce's question about the Bay Bridge. Then we've got some tips on how you can become a seasoned stargazer in no time. And be sure to stick around after the episode for our monthly trivia contest. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and this is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there. I'm Randal Delfetah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. To answer Bruce's question about reducing light pollution from the Bay Bridge, we turn to KQED science reporter Sarah Muhammad. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Olivia. So, Sarah, I know that like our question asker, you are quite the astronomy enthusiast. Oh, definitely. I don't know about you, but every time there's news about a blood moon, an eclipse, or a planetary event happening, I get super excited. But sometimes it's just hard to enjoy a clear night sky when the weather is in the way. Hello, Carl the Fog. Or when there's just too much light. It is very bright at night. I live down in San Mateo, and I can even see the Bay Bridge glowing from all the way down there. I live near Central Park in Fremont, and it always bugs me to see the bright lights when there's a game at the soccer field. Light also comes from parking lots, businesses, billboards. It's everywhere. Oftentimes, when we think about pollution, we think about air, water, or land pollution. But did you know that light can also be a pollutant? I'm familiar with the idea, but obviously we need some light at night. So what would count as light pollution exactly? Light pollution happens when there's too much unnecessary artificial lighting, more than we need to see. For example, a closed business that still has all the lights on in a window display or the bright digital billboards you sometimes see on the freeway. All those things combine to create a glow in the night sky, like the one Bruce is talking about. Astronomers and researchers call that sky glow. And the problem is getting worse every year. A study recently published in the journal Science looked at crowdsourced sky glow observations from more than 50,000 people over the course of a decade. It's part of a project called Globe at Night. The data showed that on average, the night sky is getting 7 to 10 percent brighter every year. That includes the Bay Area. Wow, that is a lot of light. I'm curious why they needed to rely on the observations from people when there's a lot of sensitive light detection equipment out there. Before this study, we relied mostly on satellite measurements of light pollution. Between 2012 to 2016, satellite data showed that light pollution grew at 2% every year. But researchers say that that's an underestimate. In the past decade, LEDs have become more widely used, and they emit more blue light, which satellites don't see as well. Researchers of this recent Globe at Night study say it's light directed sideways that accounts for most of the sky glow, something that satellites might not detect because they're more sensitive to light that is directed upwards toward the sky. Now, that brings us to Bruce's question about the eastern span of the Bay Bridge. That's the newer section that connects Oakland to Treasure Island. What did you find out about why that section is so bright? So when the new Eastern Span was built back in 2013, they installed energy-efficient LED lights, 48,000 of them. The lights are mostly pointing downwards, focusing light directly onto the roadway, though some of the light does reflect sideways and upwards, adding to sky glow. The Metropolitan Transportation Commission says the design is intended to create an even wash of white light across the roadway. They say this makes for a safer road. But the bridge also has decorative lighting that points upwards to light up the suspender cables. And that might be the cause for sky glow, too. Could those lights be redirected? The main light fixtures on the suspender cables are designed so they can easily be redirected. But a representative from the MTC says that while the agency is not indifferent to the interests of stargazers, the lighting on either span of the Bay Bridge is essential to the safety of the many thousands of drivers who cross the bridge each night. 
So I don't think you should expect change anytime soon. So that answers Bruce's question about the bridge. But as you said earlier, Sarah, the Bay Bridge is not the only source of sky glow. Are there any efforts to cut back on some of this light pollution around the Bay Area? There have been some. In fact, California legislators passed a bill in September 2022 that would have required any buildings or facilities on state-owned land to make changes to reduce light pollution. But Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed it, saying the costs were unfunded and potentially significant. The same assembly member who drafted that first bill introduced an almost identical one, AB 38, in December 2022. That one is working its way through the legislature. So it could be years before we see any statewide change. But some people are trying to push changes locally to decrease the amount of light pollution. I talked to Mark Buxbaum an amateur astronomer and member of the Santa Cruz chapter of the International Dark Sky Association. If you go out and about in town and you have to shield your eyes from the glare from the super bright lights from a gas station or a parking lot or something like that, that's bad. That's unnecessary lighting. Mark and others are hoping to make dark skies more accessible for people in his city. One of the things we're working on here in Santa Cruz is a light pollution ordinance. An outdoor lighting ordinance is meant to cut down on light pollution in a city. It might restrict illuminated signs, require shielding on lights that are too bright, or limit outdoor lighting. You can use dimmer lights. So in other words, you can put in dimmer bulbs that light up what you need to have lit up and nothing more. You can use warmer color temperature lights. Warmer, like in the yellow or amber color range, instead of the bright white or blue that's common for most LEDs, which are becoming more widely used. Unfortunately, because they're cheaper, people can install excessively bright light at night under the mistaken assumption that more light is better. It might be a while, if ever, you'll get a dark enough sky in the urban bay area to see a lot of stars or the Milky Way. So if I did want to get a good look at the stars, where could I go? You could join an astronomy club like the SF Amateur Astronomers. They organize camping and stargazing parties at places like Mount Tam and in other parks. There's also a bunch of other clubs in the Bay Area. There's a site called NASA's Night Sky Network that can connect you with many other groups. Or you could head somewhere specifically designed to look at the sky, like Chabot Space and Science Center in Oakland. Just the layout here, there's three main telescopes. You know, these two are the historical telescopes. So this smaller one is the 8-inch refractor that started Chabot Observatory in 1883 in downtown Oakland. So this is our third location. I went to visit the nonprofit science center set in the Redwoods in Joaquin Miller Park to talk with Ben Burris. He's a staff astronomer at Chabot, and he writes astronomy stories for KQED Science. So um, I don't know, you want to come in and take a look at the telescope? They are probably trying to look at Venus. A few things you can look at during the day. Venus is one of the most popular. Oh, there we go. Come on in. I peered into the smallest of Chabot's three telescopes. This one was named Leah, and I saw a little glowing spot just floating in the vast sky. It was pretty awesome. Tiny white dot right in the It's very bright, even though it's small. Yeah, so a lot of the kids say, oh, it's just a tiny little dot. And I have to remind them, well, that tiny little dot is about the same size as the Earth. Michael Steckel is a volunteer, and he was running the telescope the day that I visited. Venus is right now 
about 88% illuminated. So it goes through phases just like our moon goes through phases. Ben also showed us the other two telescopes, Nellie and Rachel. Well, these two are refractors, so they use a big lens, like a camera, to uh, collect and focus light into an image. And the other one is a reflector. It does the same thing with a big curved mirror instead. If you want to come look through the telescopes yourself, Chabot hosts free viewings every Friday and Saturday night starting at 7.30 p.m. if the weather is good. Ben told us about some exciting events in the sky to look forward to this year, starting with meteor showers. Meteors are these little chunks of dirt and dust that flew off comets that are in orbit around the solar system. When the dust hits the Earth's atmosphere, it burns up. Uh, so the Lyrid meteor shower is April 22nd to 23rd. And the reason I give two dates for meteor showers is the viewing of the meteor showers is best in the morning hours after midnight. The Lyrids produce about 20 meteors an hour, and because there will be no moon in the sky at that time this year, it should be a good show if the weather is clear. Other meteor showers Ben recommends looking out for are the Perseids happening in August and the Geminids in December. As far as where to see these light shows... You know, the Santa Cruz Mountains are pretty good. I've seen some pretty spectacular skies down there. Places like Henry Coe State Park in the South Bay, Mount Diablo in the East Bay, and Mount Tam in the North Bay are a few other options. Once you've found your spot, give your eyes a chance to get adapted to the dark and then look all over the sky. Get to know your, your dark skies in your area the best and uh, always be safe and dress warmly. <laughs> And you can see amazing things during the day as well. This year, you'll be able to see an annular eclipse on October 14th. During a total solar eclipse, the moon completely covers the sun. An annular eclipse happens when the moon's a little farther away from the Earth at the time, so it doesn't completely block the sun. You'll still have a ring of sunlight around the edge of the moon. So it'll look like a ring of fire in the sky, which is really quite beautiful. It doesn't get quite as dark as during a total solar eclipse but it's still spectacular. A ring of fire? That's pretty neat, right? From the Bay Area, we'll see a partial eclipse where about 80% of the sun will be covered by the moon, making it notably dimmer outside. And don't forget, during a solar eclipse, it is never safe to look directly at the sun without specialized eye protection designed for solar viewing. You can check out Chabot and enjoy viewing the spectacle from a solar-filtered telescope. Putting your eye up to the eyepiece of the telescope and actually having the light from that object hit your eye um, and the object looks like it's right in front of you and you can almost reach out and touch it. It's, it's a real thing, unlike a picture, and it gives you a completely different experience. It's just, it's awesome. I felt that same awe that Ben was describing when I visited the Hayden Planetarium in New York for the first time. I was maybe eight years old. I felt it again when I watched my first live rocket launch, the InSight mission to Mars that studied seismic activity on that planet. I also remember feeling it when I witnessed my first total solar eclipse in 2017. It was so cool to see the sun hiding away for a bit, darkening the sky in broad daylight. These are some of the reasons why I got so interested in space and astronomy. Ben says it was the summer he spent at camp in the Sierras when he was a kid that got him first interested in astronomy. His mother was working as a cook at the camp. 
And so I went along with her as, you know, the camp brat. And two of the counselors held a little workshop where the activity was to cut out pictures and make a nice frame out of cardboard. And the pictures he brought were some old astronomy calendars. So they were all astrophotos, you know, as they were taken back in the 70s. And they were really just captivating pictures. He says those pictures just stuck in his head. I went home and I wanted to get a subscription to Astronomy Magazine to see more of those pictures. And so that might be the one singular event that really lit the fire uh, for astronomy in me. Ben worries that as light pollution, whether from the Bay Bridge or billboards or buildings, disrupts our ability to see the stars, that our connection to the night sky might eventually fade. I think that when you don't have that connection to the sky, you might not have as many opportunities to ask, you know, what is this universe we live in? There are billions of stars in our Milky Way. These luminous balls of gas helped ancient explorers navigate on land and on the sea, guiding them through the night. Humans have formed connections to our stars and our constellations for thousands of years, and we are made of them. In the famous words of Carl Sagan, the nitrogen in our DNA, the calcium in our teeth, the iron in our blood, the carbon in our apple pies were made in the interiors of collapsing stars. We are made of star stuff. That was reporter Sarah Muhammad. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Our show is produced by Olivia Allen Price, Amanda Font, and Brendan Willard. Christopher Beale was our engineer this week. The show will be taking a planned break next week, so we won't be dropping an episode, but we will be sending our monthly newsletter on Wednesday, April 5th. If you're not subscribed yet, head to baycurious.org to sign up or click the link in our show notes. We'll be back in your feeds on April 13th. Our monthly trivia contest is just ahead. Best of luck to you. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.